is Monica Perez, and joining us today, a returning guest, our resident math nerd and financial guru, Jason Purcell. You've heard his beginning of dollarization, basically the history of money in a nutshell. And But I have been waiting all this time to get to the here and now and to see what this guy, who really does his homework, thinks about where we are and kind of how soon CBDC is coming, if it's overhyped. I mean, I just want to know what he thinks. So Jason, thanks for being back. Hey, how's it going? Good. Uh, so I kind of want to hit the punchline first. So we, we sure. ended off like we did Bretton Woods, we were in the 70s, and I don't want to let another episode go by without figuring out exactly the answer to my biggest question, which is what's going on right now. And a lot, there's a lot of hype. People are scared. They're like, I don't want anything mm -hmm. to do with money. I'm converting everything to gold or to dried mm -hmm. fish or whatever. So, so lay it on me. Well, you know, first of all, since you mentioned the yellow metal, gold is not a bad investment. You know, I would say five to 10% of your portfolio should be in gold. And it's not a, it's not a matter of like, when I think about the gold section of my portfolio, I'm not thinking about, oh, I really want gold to go to $35,000 so that I can make a lot of money off of it, right? I don't, I don't really intend to ever get rid of my gold. What gold is, is catastrophe insurance. You see it go up when 1971, when there's no longer an anchor to the money supply, gold goes up a lot. You see it go up in the, uh, you see it go up in the commodity bull market of 2008, 2009, up into 2012, you got a lot of money printing by the central banks. They're trying to basically inflate their way out of the great financial crisis. Gold goes up then. Gold went up in 2020 when you saw, you know, brand fresh new rounds of QE and zero interest rate policy. It's there to basically guard your portfolio and kind of protect the value of your savings. And it only does that in particular cases. That's why you got to have everything else. Like you shouldn't, sell off all your stocks necessarily and buy gold. It's not a good idea to get rid of your, uh, if anybody does whole loan or excuse me, whole life policies, whole life insurance policies that pay dividends, you know, don't sell that off and get and go all into gold. It's a piece of the portfolio, but it's not everything. So it seems to me gold is genuinely a store of value. And it could also be very quickly a medium of exchange pretty quickly. And mm -hmm. um, it kind of has had that status since I think Aristotle addressed its status as like the perfect, it's one of my like five gifts from God, which are oil. Wine, gold, go oil. Well, but wine is an, it has an intervening. I agree with you, like wine, but that I don't, that's not like directly from God. So sometimes I include oh, okay. that, sometimes I don't. Is it one of the five or no? I think, let me just think for a second. It's gold. Oil, eggs, weed, and I think I came up with, I think the camel. <laughs> I've been oh, reading okay. about the Middle East. I'm like, wow, a camel. Like that really, that, that if it weren't for the camel, there probably wouldn't have been the like civilization in that, you know, the cradle of civilization. I don't know. Yeah. That it could be, I mean, I guess we would say the horse too, but um 
Maybe wine. My husband would say wine, but like an egg. So anyway, I just think that gold Eggs are is pretty cool. Yeah, gold is one of those things that like there's just nothing like it. It serves its purpose phenomenally well. Occasionally mm. gets confiscated, which would worry me. And also I'm wondering about do they manipulate the price of gold in your opinion right now? It's like weirdly stable over time, seems like to me. Yeah, uh, I think that the central banks have made plenty of attempts in the past to manipulate the prices of things, including gold and including other fiat currencies. So back in uh, 19, I want to say 69, 70, when the dollar was starting to go down against currencies like the German mark, and it was starting to, it was starting to, the gold price of the dollar in terms of dollars was starting to go up, you know, beyond $35 an ounce, that peg began to get more difficult to defend. The New York Fed, it was widely speculated that the New York Fed was going into the foreign exchange market and selling German marks forward. So they were selling forward contracts on the German mark, right? And um, that was, it was one of those things where they actually reported it in the New York Times, which I don't think the New York Times of today would would bother with that story. I think they would, you know, shove it under the rug. They'd say, oh, that's a conspiracy theory, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Back then, it was, you know, they, they, they put it in print and they said, you know, the, the New York Fed hasn't said anything about this, but everybody's pretty sure that they're doing this to, you know, defend the value of the dollar. So I think that they manipulate things in the short term, but the anecdotal evidence that I've heard on that particular matter, and that's all that we really have to go on is anecdotal evidence from people who have worked at the Fed, including uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth, who used to work at the Dallas Fed specifically. She said that literally nobody that she ever talked to at the Fed even knew what the price of gold was. They couldn't be bothered to care about it. So I think, so they definitely did make efforts when they were defending the peg back in the Bretton Woods days. They were making efforts to defend that $35 an ounce peg. And they would do that by trading, they would do that by trading paper gold, essentially. They would do gold swaps with other central banks. Hey, Germany, instead of you actually demanding your gold that I send you gold across the Atlantic Ocean to Germany for you to have, let's just do this gold swap thing where I lend you Give like, me some more, and that changes the price. That's what dollars were supposed to be, right? So, so there are actually some dollars that are gold certificates prior to silver certificates, I think. There are. Yeah, no, there are. I looked at some on eBay not too long ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I just, yeah, so a, in that context, I would say they definitely still do it. It's not a peg system, but they know what they're doing, and they have more control over these things than... And they don't, uh, in my opinion, they just don't let things not be under control that they could control. And I think they could control it. So therefore, I think they so, do. Yeah, on that on that one, I have to respectfully disagree. Oh, because it's at just this too point, big a market? At, it's at basically point, controlling it's, currency? It's not that it's too big of a market. It's that there are so many people at this point who have worked on the New York Fed's trading desk that they would have to be the ones to do it. It would be the guys on the trading desk who are now... You know, these are the guys who do QE. These are the guys who call up the investment banks and say, you know, I want a hundred billion dollars of Ginny Mae twos, please, or whatever. You know, they're buying bonds. They're in the market. You know, somebody's got to actually do this work. Well, like it's the not LIBOR, be- but the LIBOR scandal makes me think that that stuff like that can happen, but and not everybody needs to be in on it. No. Yeah, I mean, 
ultimately the LIBOR scandal, I think, was broke by a practitioner, though. In, oh, okay, so what, you really what, can't it, keep a lid on it. 2009, 2010. I mean, it's it seems really difficult. Right. To, okay, good. Fair if they, point. If the banks, if the money center banks could have kept a lid on right. that, I mean, they could they would have made, been making millions oh, yes. of dollars off yes. of it forever. Yes. Okay. Know? Very good. So. All right, I accept that. Interesting. Well, it is weird that it's so stable, though. The price of gold is so stable. Isn't it? It is, yeah. And it is, and it's it sucks that it doesn't go up when you expect it to go up, right? You look at the inflation rate and it's 9%. Yes, and I have lost many a dollar being like, I yeah. know it's going to happen. And it's funny because if you actually do start following gold, it's like basically the flip side of the dollar. I think mm-hmm. like you just that's it and then and then once you think of it that way there's like so many factors. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying to it, see in my little app here gold. Yeah, it's like it's it's definitely let me see. Yeah. yeah I mean another, I feel like it tra- to- it trades within a fairly narrow range with, you know, some cyclical bigs and downs or whatever but Mm -hmm. it's just what happens is it gets a really really big good run like you know the 1970s and then it spends a decade correcting and then it gets another good run you know like the late uh the late aughts um up into 2012 and then it spends you know however many five six seven ten years correcting and then it goes up again with 2020 and uh i i think that in the next couple years it's gonna uh hate to do i'm not gonna hate to do this to myself, but um, don't make any purchasing yes, decisions yes, based yes, on this. Yes. But I do I do actually think, you know, we've been stuck around $2,000 yeah. for the last three years. And I do think it's going to break out here in the next few. Okay. Um, again, I think we're on, now, I think it's spent enough time correcting and we're on the verge of a Do a you run, speculate but. in gold separate from the safety net aspect of it, which gentlemen yeah, skeptics, at, so you do. Gentleman skeptics mm-hmm. says precious metal investing is like betting on the economy to fail, right? And I answered or hedging, hedging that bet. Like you're either betting the economy is going to fail or you just, in case it does, you need a backstop or whatever. What yeah, when think? people think of gold, it's always, uh, is is your currency going to fail or is it going to get anywhere near failure? Are you going to have really big inflation or geopolitical risk, right? Like, uh, it's get right now it's getting a pretty substantial boost off of what's going on in the Gaza Strip and um, Israel right now. So th- those are the two things that people look to gold to. And if you look at the just the long-run averages, you know, it... it it's done a decent job of that. It's, it hasn't done amazing. Like it doesn't go up in lockstep with the CPI or anything, but you know, but it ultimately does a job. the reason to recommend gold is, is first and foremost as like a fundamental asset. That's like as connected to life on earth as like human mm-hmm. civilization can be. So I'm with you there. I have a little, not a lot. Um, I always wanted, I think my dad had and actually like turned it in for, money um Mm -hmm. like a sack of silver dimes Mm -hmm. he just as soon as they it'll stop doing silver dimes he just started collecting them and i think he was broke one time and he literally like turned them in at the bank instead of selling them as silver uh but anyway so a sack of silver dimes would probably be don't even he also had like a brooklyn (laughs) dodgers baseball from when he was like a delivery boy Brooklyn Uh, Dodgers, like signed by all the Brooklyn Dodgers. And that's gone too. mm -hmm. We'd be rich. So, but anyway, I just think like silver dimes are probably like a great medium for exchange because they, you can really, like as Ron Paul said, like a gallon of gas Mm -hmm. is worth a silver dime, basically. 
um, mm-hmm. always. So uh, anyway, so so where are we? Like the our original conversation, even just offline, you and I talked about yeah. de-dollarization, and I mm-hmm. like said, okay. There's de-dollarization from a global perspective, and there's also the trends towards CBDC. So where are mm-hmm. we on the path to de-dollarization, and how does that fold into, or is the CBDC thing inevitable? If so, right. kind of like, so the present is a, is a de-dollarization, let's say, and the future is CBDC. How do they connect? Or, What's up? Right. Or is it de-dollarization? Right? Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Come on. Right. So ever since so ever since 2022, uh, February 2022, what happens then? Russia invades Ukraine. It's not the beginning of the war over there. That war started in 2014 yes. when the U.S. backed a coup yes. against the uh, democratically um, elected president. The democratically elected president, right in in Ukraine, um, annexed Crimea. Who actually wanted to be annexed? Incidentally, they call that an invasion. Funny how all that works. Um, and if anybody doesn't believe that, just go and Google, you know, John McCain and um, oh, what's his face? I'm pretty sure Lindsey Graham and Chris Murphy and all of these sen- senators, they were over there. They were in Ukraine and they were linking arms with this Voboda party who, when it registered to be a political party in Ukraine in 1995, their original uh, emblem was actually a swastika. So that's, I did not make any of that up. That's 100% fact. So if you doubt oh, yes. any of that, no. just check My it out. listeners know that. I don't think there's <laughs> yeah, any sure doubt about that. I was talking about it yeah. in 2014. I was like, you guys would not yeah. believe what's happening in Ukraine right now. That Vicky yep. the Noodle is up to no good. <laughs> yeah, and, and she's an undersecretary of state now. You know, she's an undersecretary oh, yeah. of state in the Biden administration. And she got her start. You know, if you, if you, if you doubt the existence of a deep state, you know, Victoria Victoria Newland got her start in the Dick Ch- working for Dick Cheney. She and her husband is one of the founders of the Project for a New American Century, which is oh, the Robert neocon Kagan. think tank. Yep, which Robert is Kagan. kind of funny. Kagan is the word for king in Kazarian. So if you want to go down like total conspiracy, and and I think yeah. all the Kagans here are related, like Alana Kagan or whatever is like a Supreme hmm. Court justice, and all the Kagans are somehow related. I think they're they she may just be a cousin. Which would be gentleman skeptic F the EU Newland. That's yes, right. Yes, mm-hmm. but that <laughs> see that was a a a misdirection. So during that conversation where she said F the EU, she was actually literally in words plotting the coup against the 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 government and naming names of who would take which positions inside and yep. outside mm-hmm. of the capital by name. People who actually got those jobs, Cleach still yep, has his job. One of them was a Nazi. Like, I mean, Voboda <laughs> party. That's yes, who they and that guy, Tony Book, were... was literally not allowed in this country at that time for being a Nazi. And I mean, that one I and know. and the, and the, what's the soundbite? F the EU. Anyway, yeah, we are. It, it goes on way beyond tangents. that. <laughs> yeah. FEU is the least interesting part of it. Totally, that. totally. It is right. kind of interesting yeah. though. Sure. In a way, it's kind of interesting because you think it's all sewn up. Right. And, and it's not. You know, I there's guess mu- it's there's not. multifactionalism everywhere. That is very interesting, yeah. but not for the not because it's vulgar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so uh, so this is relevant? Yeah, it is. Cool. Um so 2014 is an interesting year because 2014 is also the year when the foreign exchange reserves of China, okay, China's holdings of dollar foreign exchange reserve peak. 
All right, that's that's the point at which China's foreign exchange reserves in dollars, its assets, its mortgage-backed securities that it buys from the U.S., its U.S. Treasury bonds that it buys from the U.S., they stop going up. All right, so how does a country, how does a monetary authority get its hands on foreign exchange reserves? Well, we know about two ways now because we've been through Triffin's dilemma and we've been through the euro dollar market. So we'll just briefly, you know, summarize that. China gets dollars in trade. We run a trade deficit with China, which means we're delivering to China more dollars than they send to us, you know, just over the course of a year in trade. And it's been uh, like that for many, many years. Um, and it doesn't have to be from the U.S. necessarily. So the China, China is a manufacturing base for the rest of the world, and everybody else is paying in dollars too. So the Chinese banking system gets a lot of dollar deposits. They also borrow a lot of dollars. Okay, so the Chinese banking system is going to take on a lot of U.S. dollar debt in order to fund a lot of its investments. A lot of different countries that are not the United States borrow in dollars. That's the essence of the euro dollar market. So they end up with these dollars and they get spent. Now, the extent to which the Chinese banks can do something with these dollars, they're going to turn them into loans and they're going to they may lend them offshore, but they're going to do everything they can with these dollars they get. The rest of those are going to end up on the balance sheet of the central bank. Okay, so whatever the banking system can't use, whatever it can't put to work by lending, it's going to take to the central bank and say, hey, I have, you know, $100 million. I want you on, please, because I need domestic currency. That's what my customers are demanding. The central bank, the monetary authority, then ends up with $100 million of deposits. And most of what ends up happening after that time is it gets converted to what is the reserve asset. In the old days, this is kind of bringing it home with our, old, with our conversation about the gold peg. So in the old days, and, and ultimate settlement, I think we talked about that. In the old days when money is tied to gold, the Bank of China or the Bank of Thailand, the Bank of Japan, the Bundesbank in Germany... They would take all of these excess dollar deposits more than they want, and they would send them back to the U.S. and say, hey, give me gold. Well, now there is no gold. Nobody's redeeming anymore. So gold was the reserve asset. The reserve asset in terms of money just means once we move this reserve asset, nobody owes anything any. Nobody owes anyone anything anymore. So I'm the central bank of China. And if I could get gold from the United States, then the United States no longer owes me anything. A dollar is a claim on, you know, something. It's a, it's one a purchasing power. One two thousandth power. of an ounce of gold. One two thousandth of an ounce of gold. Yep. It'd be, you know, back then it would be 35 or whatever before the Bank of China was really operating, but whatever. So that's ultimate settlement. We close the loop of a transaction. I no longer owe you. You no, no longer owe me. You've sent me the thing that I want. Gold is the reserve asset. Now, what do central banks use as the reserve asset? When the central bank of China, when the People's Bank of China, so-called, right? When the People's Bank of China has $100 million of uh, dollar deposits that it wants to get rid of, what does it do with it? It buys the only thing it can get that's worth more than a deposit of dollars. It buys U.S. Treasury bonds and agency mortgage-backed securities from the U.S. Now, is the global financial system backed by debt? The reserve yeah. asset is literally debt, pieces of paper that represent right. debt. It's a claim right? on their ability to tax our the population in the future, I would say. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so, I, I have once in a while been able to seriously intuit 
the idea of a debt-based currency. And mm. I just remember, like, every once in a while, I'll be like, oh, I get it, but it eludes me. It's so hard to just, like, see it all click together. But, yes, mm. it is a a debt-based currency because all the money comes down to, yeah, treasuries, right? Yep. Yeah, so when if you just put it in parallel with what would happen if we still had some kind of gold standard versus what happens now that we don't, you know, in the old days, you take your balances of a foreign currency that you don't want and you turn it into gold. You call that central bank, you know, maybe it's 1890 and the Bank of England wants uh, gold instead of French francs. They have more French francs than they want. So they telegram the Bank of France and they say, you know, we're going to, we would like uh, to redeem some of these French francs for gold. And that was still doable, at least at the central bank level up until 1971. Everybody else couldn't do it, right? It was just the central banks. But now, yes. What... So what they, if this is an intuitive moment, like try to clarify something. Mm -hmm. So China has a bunch of dollars, a stack of actual dollars, and they're going to give it to the U.S. government for treasuries. The U.S. It's really electronic dollars. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm deliberately saying it's actual, you know. Yeah, So, And then they go and they give it to them and they could take that stack of dollars, issue new debt, but they could retire old debt. But- what really makes it debt, I think, is that they don't retire all debt with it. They spend it. Oh, yes, absolutely. Right. So they okay. issue new debt and then they send it and then they spend they, it. They, they could spend they, it, right, yeah. on... Yeah. And, that, and there is an element... I remember hearing Powell say, Nancy has to pass the bills to spend the money mm-hmm. or we cannot create new dollars. And so... I mean, there is a monetization then. I think they just like glossed over the fact that they were not allowed to directly monetize that mm-hmm. debt. And even and in Europe too, it's completely against the EU charter. And I just remember when all of a sudden, like they were like, oh, are they gonna do it? Are they gonna do it? And then they just started doing it. And so then you have this like direct monetization of the debt, right? Where they actually do just print money out of nowhere. But um do they need to have do they need to match it with fiscal spending in order to use those dollars like my intuition's breaking down there uh well the so the fed could really buy anything they wanted to in order to create new dollar reserves right so uh, when the fed was first founded they actually weren't supposed to buy us treasury debt if you can believe that so in the, the original bank charter, they were really only supposed to buy. Um, that's what I'm saying. United I don't even think that's that old rule. I think that was only kind of in the past. They got decade rid of it in World two. War One. I. I believe you, but I'm trying to understand when. Wasn't this an issue recently? Like within the past ten years? Oh, so in the. In, in the more recent time, the issue was, can the Fed buy a security that's not a U.S. Treasury bond? Okay. So when the Fed's first founded, it's oh, kind of funny, yes, 100 years ago. Oh, yes, then they're bailing ago, out the corporations Right, right. Can they buy private money. mortgage-backed that's securities? That's right, yes. Right. But in the yeah, EU, so the question, it was the other question still recently, right? Mm-hmm. In the EU... I don't actually know okay. the answer to that. That's fine. I don't know. I don't know as much about. I'm the, not going to uh, swear to that anyway. But okay. I seem to recall. But yes, that was it. It was corporate debt. Yes, I remember that. Right. Yeah. So in in the COVID days, it was can the Fed is it is it kosher for the Fed to buy an ETF 
backed by corporate bonds. Right. Right. 14, 15 years ago, it was, is it acceptable for the Fed to buy mortgage-backed securities that are issued by private investment banks instead of U.S. Treasury debt? The irony in all of that is that a hundred years before when the Fed was first founded, it wasn't even supposed to buy, it was only supposed to buy privately issued paper, right? The Fed was supposed Hmm. to create reserves by buying, yeah, they were supposed to buy uh, bankers' acceptances and commercial paper. Which are which are sixty, um, thirty, sixty, and ninety day instruments that are just used by banks to borrow money. That's that's what they were supposed to buy. And they're considered and then, highly secure, I assume. Yeah, highly liquid because they they don't have a whole lot of duration risk. Uh, you're talking again, thirty, sixty, ninety days. The some of the shortest loan terms that you can make, issued by banks, which are large and reliable. Right. Okay. And that's a lot of wondering. these. Yeah. And bankers' acceptances, those are paper that's ultimately backed by some kind of real trade. So there's real economic activity behind that where, you know, there's some corporation that's shipping goods across the Atlantic and going to get paid for them. And then it's going to pay the bank once that happens. So it, in that sense, it's also tied to economic activity. So that, that was the logic there. World War I threw all that out the window. Uh, the, the government decided. And at the time, the Fed was merged with the Treasury. So um, at that time, it was decided, yeah, the head of the Federal Reserve Board was also the Treasury Secretary. At its inception? I believe so, and and by World War II, for yeah, sure. that was right. true. That I believe mm-hmm. World War II for sure. I believe that. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I think that was. I think that's the way it was at its inception. Um, yeah, you've I'll been really to, good at the facts. Like you, yeah, definitely, go, your I'll recall is impressive. So if if it passed across your eyeballs, I'm thinking it's true. <laughs> you remember well, it. Man, thank you. I appreciate that. I need to. I'll make a note to just go back and check that. Um, and then I'll, if I'm wrong, I'll let you know for sure. So, um, <clears throat> so this just says, I just want to, I mean, this is a nuance that I want to explore for a second. Okay. Debt monetization yeah. or monetary financing is the practice of a government buying money from the central, borrowing money from the central bank to finance public spending. Mm-hmm. So, let me just think about that for a second. So nor let's say it's the year 2015. There's a deficit. How a mm-hmm. fiscal deficit. How does mm-hmm. that get paid for? Yeah, so what happens is the Treasury Department is going to send out an auction announcement and they're going to say uh, we're going to okay. borrow on- Sorry. Yes. The Treasury Department issues the debt. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, Treasury Department. And then its fiscal agent is yes. the Fed. Okay, so that's the government. But the Fed, which is like they say, technically not actually an arm of the government. Independent. So a right. lot so treasuries, generally, the vast majority of treasuries in 2015 were not purchased by the Fed, correct? Uh correct. There are a few different windows over the last 15 years where most of the debt at a, at a given time was purchased by the Fed. And to look at that, you would just look at the the rounds of QE. Um, so you've got the first one in 2009 is when they actually started to make purchases. You got another one in, I want to say 2011. Uh, there, I think there's another one in 2013. And then in uh, 2020, the example that 
I remember a little bit more clearly. So the Fed's balance sheet, uh, so the Fed acquires about $5 trillion of U.S. Treasury bonds. And the government at the time, over the same time that they acquire $5 trillion, I believe the government borrowed about $6 trillion. So the vast majority okay. was purchased by the Fed at so that time. So the reason that might be controversial and not preferred during normal times is that if it's not in the public market and it's not actually, if it's not clearing, it's probably because the inflation, the interest rate is being suppressed. And then the Fed is coming in and keeping that interest rate low by increasing the demand to a level that's not validated by the market. So... And I think that would then be highly inflationary, or I don't know if it would be more inflationary, probably well, I, more inflationary because they're actually printing new, like, because it's M1 or whatever. Yeah. Um, so bank reserves, what the Fed creates in order to buy these bonds are M0. So that's what's called base money. Oh, Back wow. when we were M0. On, yeah, nice. Yeah. Back when we were on gold, base M0 money, yeah. was gold plus yeah. however many reserves the yeah, Fed created. Because M1 includes the greenbacks, right? Or whatever. Green money. Paper money. In the, yeah. Um, Linen money. Yeah, M0 does, M0 includes the paper currency. Yeah, that's right. correct. And then you keep going. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we don't need to go back, keep going down there. I just wanted to understand um, how, because we were talking about, and we can get back to this, that China has a stack of money. They give mm -hmm. it over. They get treasury bonds, which they hold. And mm -hmm. when those things come due, if it's bills or bonds or whatever, depending on how long it takes, maybe they're 30 years, they just mm -hmm. keep them there and they're worth money in 30 15, years. 15, 20. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, and then when that money gets back here, instead of retiring old debt with it, it's basically always just spent on new debt because we're always running deficits. Yeah, in in theory, the United States government could take those foreign purchases and they could use it to retire some of their old debt. Um, they could treat it as a as a buyback, and they could say, "Okay, we're going to take debt from one pocket and move it over to another one." And now our debt goes from, you know, let's say it's um, whatever. Let's say it's a trillion dollars, and right now the debt is thirty three trillion. So we're just going to take this, and now we're going to knock our debt down to thirty two trillion. You know. Good stuff. Uh, but yeah, they don't do that. They just keep spending. Right. Okay. So why was that important? Why is the Chinese example important to our de-dollarization? Because, yes, narrative? because ever since 2022, since the war in Ukraine picked back up, so civil war went on for eight years before the invasion in 2022, uh, there has been, in, this is when the de-dollarization talk really got going. So Putin sent out some floaters and by floaters, I mean messages to global financial markets through, you know, his, uh, his equivalent of the U S treasury secretary, right? The minister of finance or whatever, saying that the Russian central bank is going to start buying gold for uh, like 5,000 rubles, a gram, something like that. And so now you have all these rumors circulating that Russia is going to remonetize gold. Russia is going to remonetize gold. Once the the other thing that happened with the invasion is that a, a particular expert on the monetary system, his name is Zoltan Poser. He worked for Credit Suisse, which is now defunct. Uh, I'm sure a lot of your your listeners will probably know that too. Uh, but he gave a presentation in early March, 
Now, what happened in the two weeks between the invasion and this uh, this talk is that the G10 froze a significant portion of Russia's foreign exchange assets. So, what happens is a lot of these foreign a lot of these foreign central banks they maintain these balances of dollars of euros, and a lot of those balances and a lot of those holdings of treasury securities are actually just kept at the Federal Reserve. So, it's very easy. It's very simple for the Federal Reserve to simply freeze their assets. Hey, you have $200 billion on deposit with us and you have 200 billion euros of deposits with the ECB. Well, guess what? You don't anymore. That's what they did to Iran in 1979 several times. And so it's very simple. You know, these... It's money that people think it's like we gave money to Iran when we unfreeze it. Right. But it's their money. Like, I think there's a lot of that. I think we have a fair amount of other people's claims. Yeah, the estimates I've seen with Iran alone are uh, between $100 billion and $150 billion. Wow. Yeah. And they're not the only ones. Correct. I'm sure there are Um, private individuals, too, who are under suspicion or being politically mm -hmm. persecuted who also suffer that. Okay. Yeah, I think Venezuela, I think, has Mm -hmm. a lot of assets frozen as well. Right. Yeah. Oligarchs, quote. Probably. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yep, exactly. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, so in 2022, we get uh, March March 2022. So they freeze the assets. March 2022, Zoldan Poser gives this talk, and and the what he says is that we're seeing a breakdown of the Bretton Woods 2 system into Bretton Woods 3. So in his hmm. framework, Bretton Woods 2 is Bretton Woods without gold, and that's basically what we live under right now. He says this is going to weaken the euro-dollar market, and by the end of it, the U.S. dollar's uh, the U.S. dollar's strength against other currencies is going to be significantly weaker. Essentially, what he's saying is, you know, this is the de-dollarization play. The United States has pissed off these other countries, uh, Russia, which is more closely aligned with China, China, which is more closely aligned with Russia than it is to the United States. And anybody who's tangential to this group is going to start exploring other alternatives because, you know, you've shut us out of your system uh, the Russians were banished from the SWIFT payment right, network. Right, I was just going to ask you about SWIFT and say that in my you know, conspiracy-mindedness, I I kind of wondered when they were doing that, it was obvious what was going to happen. And one thing that did happen was some of those countries seemed to accelerate their moves towards central bank digital currency and liberate themselves from the kind of Western integration. And I feel like the Western powers that knocked down that first domino knew what they were doing. Why might they want to do that, do you think? Do you not speculate on conspiracy? Because I think think that the powers that be, the Western powers that are making these decisions, which are specific people, I'm sure we could find their names. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe, I think there's a chance that what they want is a kind of another Iron Curtain because, now this is totally speculative, but I think they may have realized that they cannot control the resources like fossil fuels and stuff. They wanted a worldwide, like to be specific, Rockefeller wanted a worldwide monopoly on oil. And I Mm. believe he may have been instrumental in trying to take the czar out because he would have been the biggest competitor there. And that was an effective strategy (laughs) because Russia did not become, you know, the the monopolist of oil. Anyway, so I feel like maybe now they're like, you know what? 
we are not going to really truly be able to dominate that part of the world. So let's just put a curtain down so we at least don't have to endure competition from them. And we can do that by separating the financial system for one thing. Mm -hmm. No way to speculative well, or crazy no 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 not at all so what what was going through my mind when all of this first started to crack uh you know when when the fissures started to really reopen because what are these i mean these are old core uh, cold war lines right that's all this is so it's right. not even really a new that's division what I thought. yeah it's a reinstatement of the old one um so, uh, I mean, why waste all that like archetypal propaganda? Animosity, yeah. <laughs> you know? Why waste all the pent up? Yeah, there's so many like Jean Le Carre novels and stuff. Like you just, yeah, just you know, there's so it's much richer to have like Russians than Middle Easterns. Not that they're not going to sure. do all of it, but okay, got it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we'll we'll get to the middle. We'll get to the uh, the the Gulf states, but I I, I think that they're going to stay uh, protectorates of the U.S. until Kingdom Come. Really? I really okay. Do. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, well, not what for about, sure. That's just what I think. What about Central Asia, where they have? I think that's where the like. I think there's more oil actually now moving east. If you talk about like peak oil, I think it mm -hmm. maybe Central well, with Asia. Central Asia yeah, with Central Asia, I would just say watch India for uh, watch the watch for the establishment of United States Army bases mm -hmm. or Chinese Army bases. What it's going to be one or the other. It won't be both. India will have as the kind of tiebreaker, right? And India and China right now are already they've already been in skirmishes over their shared border to India's uh, northeast. Um, so it's it, and I've seen. I've seen diplomatic engagements U.S. to India where, you know, Blinken's visited there several times. Uh, the next move, I, I do believe, is to start to establish U.S. bases there, wow. just as the U.S. did in Pakistan during the War on Terror. And they had a, a president, Imran Khan, come to power who basically oh, yeah. said, we're not going to do this anymore. And then Imran Khan, you know, wouldn't you know, a few years later gets ousted. But What's he up to these days? He's a hero of a friend of mine, and I just... Uh... I think he's under house arrest. Oh, really? Wow. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, so interesting. That's um, a good insight that you think that we're going to kind of try to occupy India more or less. And I mean, given, I just think because given their colonial history and their obviously, you know, continuing interaction with England and London, and it's mm -hmm. just basically an open door, uh, yet they are the, you know, they are an Asian whatever subcontinent i think that's actually supposedly not a nice thing to say i don't know uh oh i don't I know i think it might anyway but whatever it's an asian country and i just mm -hmm. i'm fascinated to see how i mean they they just could be so just change the course of history really yeah they've they have not ever since 2022 um they have not chosen a side, so they won't. In the the UN resolutions, which are stupid, but you know they're symbolic and they do mean something. So if one country refuses to condemn Russia for the invasion of Ukraine, but they also will not, you know, take a vote in condemning Russia or any of these other UN resolution matters where the U.S. is 
in the West are trying to kind of identify who their friends are, to me, that means something, right? And right now, they're not picking a side. And I also think it's very interesting that Rishi Sunak was absolutely positively shoehorned in there as the prime yes. minister. I mean, if you, I did a couple of shows on just... Could at the around every corner, there's just like, oh wait, that door is closing. That door is closing. Like mm-hmm. there was no, I mean, there was absolutely no democratic moment in his election at all. Election nope. selection, not one, none. I mean, I, I guess you followed it too because no one would know that if they unless they really looked at it because it was just. And then like that day, it was two o'clock or whatever, and the chick who was running against him, she's like, I just, I give up. It's like, well, yep. you're the only qualified exactly. person in the world who can challenge him right now, and you just gave yeah. up. Like, why? Up. <laughs> that was crazy. And I used to think they have something, for a moment, same, yeah. same reason it always yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, right. So there's that, and then we have some very prominent uh, Indian American candidates for highest. I mean, Kamala Harris is in you know the White House right now. Sure. Um, Nikki Haley, Married, like Indian by marriage. No, she's half, she? no, she's her half Indian. mother yeah. is Brahmin, if I understand right. correctly, and she was raised by her mother. I believe the parents were divorced for some mm-hmm. of her formative years. The dad's a Jamaican guy, but he's a I think a professor in the U.S. So, but then Nikki Haley, if you watch that GOP debate. Why would anyone? But I thought it was yeah. I thought it was amusing. So I watched it I did too. and it was fun. Guilty yeah. Pleasure. It was fun to do that. I wasn't like, gee, I wonder what they're gonna say. I was surprised that they all want to invade Mexico, though. That was that was a new one. But she I thought yeah. she was just totally, you know, got the questions in advance. You know, I thought they favored her. And then the new kind of Trump rabble rouser guy is also of uh Indian descent. So I think that there's a a moment here where the West is going to try to bridge with India, and that's that'll be interesting to watch. Anyway, so all right, so they yeah. so they uh, alienated these people from SWIFT and these countries from SWIFT, and obviously and, specifically. You know, yeah. Yeah. Specifically, Russia. They haven't gone after. You know, the Chinese are still able to use SWIFT. Iran, they can use SWIFT well, all they want. I think they booted Iran from SWIFT a while ago. Or is are are they back? And then I remember India just started directly trading with Iran, if you recall correctly. Yeah. Um, I think the story with Iran is they're back in. I think they, I think sanctions so were lifted. So it was lifted. just Russia. Thank you. Got it. Yeah. I'd have to look in it. No, no. I'm sure you're right. With, I'm sure you're right. Well, I don't know. I, I really am shaky on that one because the they got a lot of their restrictions lifted with the JCPOA in 2015. I don't know which of those were put back in when Trump ended the JCPO, oh, the nuclear arms right. treaty, right, yes. in um, 2020 yes. or 2021, whenever it was. So, uh, yeah, with, with Iran, they're always moving in and out of the crosshairs, you know. <laughs> right. It's been that way for decades. Okay, so they're getting pushed out on purpose or not, and what's happening? So how? what's the evolution now? Right, so... Ever since then, at least the financial side of Twitter, which I don't think is that big of a subpopulation, but, you know, take it for what it's worth, as well as the circles that I think, you know, that I definitely listen to. And I, w- I would also say in general, the the community of, you know, the diff- the the podcasts and the yeah. and the al- alternate media sphere, mm-hmm. I guess is what I'm looking at, thinking about is I would say definitely more geared towards the dollar is going to shit, right? You know, the 
the bricks are going to get off the dollar and they're going to be successful at it. And this is going to mean bad things for, you know, U.S. stocks and bonds and the value of the dollar in general. And we're going to have hyperinflation and, and this kind I mean, of thing. But shouldn't that kind of stuff be baked into the price? Because the dollar is very strong right now. Okay, so that's one of the key things that I keep coming back to is that when when the dollar or excuse me when the when the pound lost its reserve currency when it really went from being a reserve currency to uh just another fiat currency <laughs> out there in in the world right when it just when it went from being a high status currency to a not high status currency it was just the phrase that you used is exactly the one that people need to think about. It's baked into the price. Okay, so the British had struggled after World War I when that whole process started, like we talked about. The British struggled to get back on the gold standard at the old pre-war parity. There's a reason for that. It's because the pound was not as valuable after the war as it was before. And they, they strangleholded their economy in the process of doing that. They basic by trying to adhere to that old standard because the market didn't actually value it at that price. Um, it should have been devalued. They should have just mm -hmm. allowed their currency to devalue against gold and accordingly the dollar, but they didn't. So they had they spent the the 1920s in something of a depression, and then they went into the Great Depression, and it was just a horrible 20 years for Britain. Now, after that, after World War II. Very soon after World War II, they devalue again from like 386 to the dollar down to 250. And then I believe they did it again even before 1971 when all the currencies were allowed to float. So this is exactly what you're talking about. It's in the price. If this is going to happen at some point, it has to show up in some price somewhere. And the thing about it is that in the last 10 years, uh, I can... I'll find a link to this and and uh, send it to you, so maybe you can you can distribute it. Um, but the dollar in the last ten years is stronger against every single currency in the world. Every one, it is wow. not falling in is not falling in value. I was yeah. going to say like somebody <laughs> has to be actually stronger for us to lose status. You know what I mean? It's relative. Yeah. it's actually one hundred percent relative. Yeah, and these changes are preceded by moves in prices. When uh, when Nixon, so Nixon did not know in March of 1971 that he was going to have to decouple, the, that he was going to have to suspend gold convertibility. He didn't know that until probably August. There were probably some people in his administration who figured it was coming, but by March, there were already newspaper articles being run by investment professionals and traders saying, you're going to be able to make a profit trading gold here in the next few years. Okay, the dollar price of gold is going to go way up. They were predicting this. There was a futures exchange. I think we talked about this, but in summer of 1971, there was a futures exchange that was already trying to allow people to trade gold basically on paper and the backing to get around the restrictions around trading mm -hmm. of gold, the backing was gold coins, okay? Specific gold coins, not gold bullion. Right. So they were hoping that that would get them around the restrictions. That was happening in the summer of 71. So my point is, is that these big moves in the monetary realm, you know, people see them coming. They don't just fall out of the sky. And the other thing that happens is that they're market-driven. So a government has never been able to unilaterally or even multilaterally plan, okay, we're going to be the reserve currency now. 
The British didn't do it in the 1850s when their currency started to be the reserve currency. Even the Dutch did not do it on purpose in the 1600s when all, all these merchants in Europe and in uh, North America and in East Asia well, 1600s, 1700s, right? When all these bankers around the world are holding balances in the Bank of Amsterdam, okay, they didn't plan that. And just as well, the dollar, the people in charge of the US government, they didn't plan to be the world's reserve currency. And there's actually a lot of people within, historically, the Treasury Department who have thought it's kind of a pain, yeah. and, and at the Fed more so, it's kind of a pain to be in the world reserve. Yeah. It's kind of a pain to be the world reserve currency. You know, you have to be the lender of last resort to that. everybody in the world. And it just, it feels like if you weren't, though, I mean, just 90% of the dollars would rush back in here and we would never be able to import anything ever again, basically. You know what I mean? I'm afraid it would be hyperinflationary yeah. if we weren't if the dollar weren't demanded everywhere for everything. So hyperinflation is something well, that happens to that. It, yeah. and yeah, but but you, but that is the even if you hadn't said it, that I think is is a majority position among a lot of the people who we talk to, right? So there'd be um, many more maybe a lot of dollars your, chasing goods here, and they would not mm -hmm. really be worth very much in the rest of the world, which is why we wouldn't be able to import stuff at the same rate is what I meant. Hyperinflation, I understand, sure. is something different. It would be a one-time yeah. massive increase in the number of dollars circulating in the U.S. Right. And a one-time increase in inflation is coincidentally what the British saw in, or maybe not coincidentally, <laughs> but what the British saw in the late 40s and early 50s. So while the French in the U.S. are seeing inflation, you know, post-war, uh, Every belligerent country in the world had inflation right. because that's war, that's unfortunately, the cost of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, unfortunately, the cost of war is, you know, ultimately borne by the population in the form of inflation. That's the, that's true for wars going back centuries and centuries. So while what it the manifestation of Britain, I think, losing its reserve currency status is that the dollar. So the United States, we saw inflation rates of 15, 19, 20 percent for a couple years. And the French had 15, 19 percent for a couple years. And while we had 15 and 19 percent, the British had 40. Right. But then a few years later, their inflation rates were well in line with ours. So it was you know, to use your words, one time, it was very much There's a, a one-time inflationary for, spike. Like a paradigm a, shift, yeah. Right, yeah. I, that's a really good way to put it. Exactly. Um, so, in the event that that happens, you know, do, should you have any major concerns beyond the ones that you already have when it comes to protecting your wealth from a fiat currency, right? When people save and accumulate fiat currency these days, you know, especially people who have read a little bit of Rothbard or they've listened to you or they've gone or they've looked at, you know, Mises University videos, everybody know everybody knows their fiat currency is worthless. <laughs> so what do they do? Hopefully they turn it into assets. Well, it's well, just, it's, it depends on belief. That's all. You know, fiat currency yeah, is worth something yeah. if people think it's worth something. Sure, it's certainly sure. medium yeah. of exchange if people think it, it is. It absolutely is, yeah. So, yeah. but yes, I mean, is. yes, it has no inherent value, which is my problem with crypto. Like, not only does it have mm -hmm. no inherent value, 
you cannot measure the supply in any way. There's no visibility on supply. Except for Bitcoin, there is visibility on supply. But if you take them all together, yeah, the there's absolutely no visibility on supply. So how do you value that? You just you just don't. And you can see with crypto like how crazy it gets based on people's moods. And mm -hmm. the only thing I think with fiat is that like people have confidence. I could be wrong, but I just feel like people have confidence in it. And there is a track record of how it behaves. So that's helpful. And there's some visibility mm -hmm. on the things that make it change value, you know. So I think that's yep. why it is there, but it doesn't have inherent value. Whereas, like, if you if you imagine an apocalyptic scenario, your gold is much, much more likely to have actual value. And I, I don't know what your Bitcoin thumb drive is going to have. I don't not right. Isn't yeah, that how your Bitcoin <laughs> runs around? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this monetary con economist I uh, I follow, his name is George Selgin, who's uh, again he he uh, writes for the Cato Institute. But huh. anyway, he put it really well. He's like, you know, it's it's really funny who it's really funny the fact that most of the people I've encountered who are really enthusiastic about Bitcoin are also the ones who assign the highest probability out of anyone to an event where the entire electrical grid just crashes and there's no power and no electricity to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how are these things, how are these two things Gotta operating work together. in the same yes. brain, you know? <laughs> maybe yeah. you don't know how it works, you know, maybe that that is a good point. Like, it's just, it's a little tricky. So, um, yeah. okay, so what you're saying is, we think, you know, as libertarians, we think that fiat is fundamentally valueless. And so what? How does that tie into what we're talking about? Oh, so it's just the fact that, listen, if your concern is that the U.S. is going to lose its reserve currency status, then what you're already doing as somebody who understands the fiat system and the you know just the general idea that you probably shouldn't hold on to dollars for very long if you you right. know the dollar the savings right the 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 dollars that you don't need right now um then what you're doing in terms of your current investment strategy is probably going to be okay you know in terms of a of a massive dollar devaluation hmm. You got a little bit of gold. You got some stocks. Uh, the thing in that case, in real that estate. situation, the real estate, sure. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, that, I always feel that, like even if the one. market crashes, if all the markets crash, you do have land, which is why I don't like debt. I know it was yeah. super low, like, you know, 2%. So that was an asset. If you have like a 2% 30-year loan, like obviously that's an asset. I have a super low mortgage. Yeah, I mortgage, mean, you can yeah. never pay that down. You will always have that debt, mm -hmm. but it's fine. It's just that I like. I think that with real estate, but if things go really crazy, then you're upside down on your mortgage, and that is much worse nightmare. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, actually owning some real estate Property is like outright. gold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is is as yep. good as gold or better than gold, in my opinion. As long as you have the for sure, probably need some guns and stuff, but. Because you have to defend it yeah, personally. Yeah, guns are a good investment too. Gold, you would have to, you know, you might be able to bury it. No one knows it's there. But if mm -hmm. you have a big, you know, an acre of land with a bunch of chickens on it, you are probably going to need some guns if the shit hits the fan. But whatever. Okay, so. Yeah, you don't need to defend those chickens for sure. Yes. And even if you're not defending them from people, you're going to need to shoot a coyote. Oh, yes. Again, there are so. a lot of coyotes where I live. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I kind of have that feeling too in that, like, if you read, if you're plugged into finances and stock, which I'm really not, I 
wasn't even really when I was an investment banker. I would like crunch my nummies and just go home. Like I just, mm-hmm. I didn't go home till four in the morning, but I wasn't like looking, I wasn't investing in stocks. I was just doing the work. Um, but when you talk to people who invest and when you read the papers and you watch the things like the cycles over time, every time it's like they say about, they used to say, I don't know about Peter Schiff, like he predicted 10 out of the last five recessions. Right, you know, yeah. and it's like, yes, if you're always <laughs> Dr. Doom, but mm-hmm. you, but you, I mean, I think that the ultimate driving force seems to be they keep printing money and the monetary, like the nominal value of assets goes up. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen a long-term break in that, in that relationship. And yes, there could be a paradigm shift, but things that they do right now, like I think they contrived COVID in part to raise interest rates to save the system. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of very smart, rich billionaire guys, I'm not just talking about like Microsoft and Amazon, but like real people who run real companies because I don't know what those things are. But they plan, you know, they know stuff. They have private research. They trust things and they make plans as if the world is not going to end. I guess they also make plans that the world is going to end. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the massive billions that they have are like out there working. I don't know. Well, there's a, there's certainly a monetary angle to COVID. And there was a crisis in the short-term funding market in September I remember 2019, the repo market. That was a, a yeah. head scratcher. <laughs> that was a head scratcher. And the, op- the explanations that were given up were, uh, well, these corporations, they needed money in order to pay their taxes. And so there wasn't as much money available for the treasury to that roll over its before. deficit. Everybody knows what their tax bill is going right. to be well in advance of having to pay it. You know, um, I wonder now if, because now th- now we know oh, that some of the first cases of COVID were circulating yeah, in Wuhan that was during the September thing. They 2019. Knew. Like 9-11, the, like people knew. The uh, uh, what was it? The conference that they had about the event two hundred one. Event two hundred one was October eighteenth. Yeah, right. So, is it the is it the case that there was actually a news driven panic in the repo market because the people who are trading these instruments in the global money center banks, the ones who are rolling over this funding, determining what what's going to be acceptable collateral and making these transactions every single morning. They're the ones who get the first crack at the news. You know, they have access to this information before everybody else does. So, you know, I, so I wonder, um, that, that's an open question for me. I'm not a, I don't know for sure one way or another, obviously, but I, I think that may have been a factor in that whole fiasco in I September wouldn't be 2019. Because there was a mysterious, very little covered meeting that Donald Trump was in in January of 2020 with a bunch of big wigs. And I remember distinctly when I was in investment banking and I knew some of the big players of in in the bank I worked in. I just, I didn't know them personally, but I mean, I met them a couple of times, but I knew who they were. I knew their names. So Mm -hmm. when I saw like during the 2008, I think it was meltdown. And like, that's when Hank Paulson was just fucking 
trying to crash the economy like every day, every minute of every day. He had a meeting with people like the day before. And I remember reading like who was in that meeting. I was like, I knew that guy. I knew that guy. I was like, these are people who run banks. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Gee, you know, yeah. they have advanced knowledge. Some, I mean, some people do, some people do. And then of course it's a quid pro quo. You have to like kind of say what you have to say to make sure you're invited into that meeting. But yes, so I do, I feel like there was a lot of um, financial motivation to how that COVID policy laid out. But are we, are you saying that you don't believe de-dollarization is imminent? Let's just see if we can get that. Like, what, what, are you going to give me like, that's what you think or you a good chance of that or whatever? Yeah. So my base case is the dollar remains the reserve currency for probably another 20 years, maybe more. So So let me just ask you, 20 years mm -hmm. from now, do you have a vision of that? Or you're just saying, I'm not willing to project further than 20 years? Oh, shit. I'm just asking, (laughs) like, is that what you're saying? Uh, Yeah, I guess when I say that, it's because I'm not willing to project further than 20 years. Uh, That's great. That's information. Excellent. Okay. Um, Keep going. Yeah. The fear, so when I think about de-dollarization and even leading up until, you know, even leading up into 2022, when I would think about this question, I would think, okay, all there's all these foreign holders around the world of United States debt. At any moment, they could make a foreign policy decision to sell all of their U.S. dollar assets and, you know, they could crash the value of bonds, right? Uh, they could. And... So, and and so that created so my framework was if the russians and the chinese and let's say the indians and the brazilians and south africa just name the bricks right so let's just take them for instance if they get together and they decide okay we're going to just offload all of our us dollar assets what does that look like well what happens is is if you flood the market with bonds that somebody else had been sitting on for a really long time, the price of those bonds goes down. And so what happens is the United States uh, interest rate, the interest rate that the US Treasury has to pay in order to borrow money goes up and it would probably go up quite a bit. And in an event where US bonds are trading at like 50 cents on the dollar, um, you're probably going to be looking at pretty high interest rates. I'll let you finish, but that already calls into question how if there's the market's deep enough for those half of the world to dump their bonds. Who's going to well, do the other that? Thing unless, is that the, is it yeah. really half the world, right? Because there's a specific. So right now, China has less than a trillion dollars of U.S. Treasury bonds, really? and our debt is thirty-three trillion. Is that a fact? I mean. That's a fact. Isn't like the meme yeah. that China owns all our debt? <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah, that, that is the meme. And we own, in, if you, U.S. people own most of it, right? Half, yeah, half of it's correct. owned by the That's U.S. True. Mm-hmm. It's, it's over half. And yeah, is the I think rest kind of diversified? I think, it, I think it's about 75%. Wow. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And is the rest kind of spread out or is there some... Do we have it's some mob up. boss so, somewhere who's pulling the strings? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> maybe it could be it could be the great great grandchildren of the Bering brothers, you know. Oh, um, maybe still still lending the U.S. money ever since. Right. Yeah. Um, so it it could be them. No, but it's it's spread out. So the the Swiss hold about seven hundred billion dollars of U.S. Treasuries. I mean, that kind of answers the question. Behalf. 
what kind of collusion right. How it much would power take. do they really have? And if 75% of it is internal, actually, mm-hmm. maybe if 75% of it is internal, maybe it wouldn't even be as devastating. It'd probably and just it, move yeah, around you, inside the system. I don't know. Now I'm getting out of my depth. It, you know, there's there's the other thing too, which is what is going to happen if the Chinese sell a trillion dollars worth of... So there, there's a couple things here. One, I mentioned 2014 because the Chinese have been net sellers of U.S. Treasury bonds since 2014. They have not wow. been... In, they have not had a net increase in uh, foreign exchange reserves since that year. Now, that's an important thing because when we talk about de-dollarization, we're implying that other countries are dumping the dollar or they would sell U.S. treasuries or not buy anymore. And they would do that from a position of strength, right? They are trying to position themselves to be stronger than the dollar. But if you look at what's happened in China, what does 2014 coincide with? So if China's exchange if China's exchange assets, if their U.S. dollar assets aren't going up anymore because they don't want to hold dollars because they are a stronger economy and they're telling the U.S., we do not need your junk paper anymore. What I would expect to see is that after 2014, the Chinese stock market continued to go up and the Chinese currency has gotten stronger, right? That's what I, right. that's what I would expect. But it's the opposite. So China's foreign exchange reserve peak, reserves peaked in 2014. That's also when the value of their currency peaked. China has kind of a soft peg of about 7 yuan to the US dollar. They don't run a hard peg. It's not like the Saudi rial, which is, uh, which is 3 rial to the dollar. So Saudi has a strict uh, currency board system where they will make sure that the Saudi rial is within a band around three to the U.S. dollar. China doesn't quite do that, but they tr- they historically have stayed around seven, uh, which is incidentally the same exchange rate as the Hong Kong dollar. So there's seven Hong Kong dollars to the U.S. And, and so in order to protect the value of their currency, if China's U.N. starts to fall further than they want it to, the only way, just going back to these foreign exchange interventions that we talked about um, an episode or two ago, the only way that they could do that is to sell the dollar assets that they have, right, in order to get a transaction where the dollar is being sold and the yuan is being bought in order to, that strengthens the yuan. Okay, so... If you put the just if you overlay the chart of China's FX reserves, you know, their let's call it their holdings of US dollar assets, you overlay that with the value of their currency, to me, it doesn't look like they're getting getting rid of dollars because they want to say F you to the US. They're getting rid of dollars because they have to. They're getting rid of dollars because they're trying to protect the value of their currency. They have to sell their foreign exchange because that's the only way a central bank can keep its currency value from falling further than it otherwise would. And that's and we know that just from the the uh, like Thailand had a pegged exchange rate up until 1997 and that is often said to be the beginning of the Asia financial crisis is mm-hmm. July 1997 when the Thailand when the Thailand monetary authority the uh, Bank of Thailand had to devalue against the dollar. And they did that because if they tried to protect that peg, they would have completely ended up selling off all of their foreign exchange reserves. It's the only thing that the central bank can do in that case. 
when their currency threatens to strengthen against the dollar and they're trying to run a peg or they're trying to maintain a certain they're trying to maintain a price around a certain band they have to buy dollars and print new yuan they have to print new bot or whatever but when it's going the other way and their currency is declining against the dollar they want to protect against that they have to sell their dollar assets so that's what that's what's been going on in china for the last you know, that's, nine that's years. 10 years mm-hmm. now, almost. Yeah, nine years. And again, we come back to this idea that if there's going to be this strengthening of the BRICS currencies, you know, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, if there's going to be this strengthening of theirs against ours, eventually it's got to show up in the price. And what we've seen from China over the last 10 or the last nine years is that the price indicator of which currency is going to be stronger at the end of whatever kind of spat this is because we we are in kind of a cold war with china and we have been for some time but and whether you think about it in terms of trade you know we we talk about trade wars we have ever since orange man in 2016 (laughs) um so there's there's a cold war uh there's a trade war the for nine years, the price of the dollar against the price of the UN has been telling us that the dollar is winning. Eventually, if the world is going to move away from the dollar and they're going to be successful at it and they're going to be better off for it, that's got to show up in the price somewhere, and it hasn't. So the dollar, and then so that's so that's part one. Part two is that answers the question of my framework for what happens if the rest of the world or certain key dollar holders, because relatively China is a, is a larger holder of U.S. debt. There's no, no disputing that. At one point, they had like $1.4 or something. So they, they are a relatively large holder of U.S. debt. So what happens when they are no longer making a conscious decision to take their foreign exchange reserves and recycle it into our debt? Well, that answers the question, because ever since 2014, at least until the Federal Reserve made a conscious decision to raise interest rates way out of the band that it's been in in the last 15 yeah. years. So the last time that Fed funds was five and a quarter was literally 15 years yeah. ago, right? Or more, more. I think it may have been 2006. Yeah. So until the Federal Reserve made a conscious decision to raise those interest rates way out of the band that we've seen in the last 15 years, the interest rates that we saw in the United States on five-year paper, on seven-year paper, on 10-year paper, only got lower from 2014 through 2021. The U.S. dollar, to, for the U.S. government to borrow for 10 years, got all the way down to like 1% in summer of 2021. The lowest of the low of the low of the low that we've ever seen. Again, you got to see it in the price of it. So what that means, excuse me, for people who are not in the, who haven't worked in finance, so, what that indicates is that the demand for those bonds right. is ultra high. And it's not so, because they think they're getting a return on it. So right. if, you, if it was 10% interest rate, you'd be like, well, you want it for that reason. And then, mm-hmm. but if, if it's very low, you're just saying, I just want dollars. I'll just- I just want safety. I want safety, yeah. I want, mm-hmm. yes, the, the US is, is a rock. Exactly. 